My turn? Yes, your turn. God bless you. I'll give you your Bible because we're going to read from the Bible. There you go. Well, the Lord be with everyone this evening. Oh, we learned that this morning. Everybody who's here tonight must not have been here this morning. That's an ancient Christian greeting, uh, and the response is also with you. Boaz used it in the Old Testament, Paul in the New Testament. So I'm going to say to break the ice, the Lord be with you, and you say? Praise the Lord. Thank you. It's been wonderful to, uh, to be here today, uh, so thank you for the invitation, and uh, my wife Rebecca and Diggory back there with me as well, and I want to thank Cor and Dixie for having us for uh, lunch this afternoon, uh, giving us a place to rest and stay as we're here uh, in, uh, in Norwich today. Uh, if you would turn to Matthew, I was talking with Matthew earlier back there, but he didn't write this. Another Matthew wrote this, Matthew's Gospel, uh, the first book of the New Testament, and we're going to read... Uh, from chapter 3, verse 1, and uh, we'll read through to verse 12. Not going to be looking at the whole passage necessarily, uh, only going to really be dwelling upon verse 8, but we will read uh, this entire passage in its context. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to Raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word to us this evening. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the message this evening. Father God, we thank you again that on this your day we can crown your day by gathering not only in the morning but in the evening to worship you, to declare your greatness and to hear from you by your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this story about John the Baptist. And I pray by your spirit uh, that you would take the truths from this passage uh, and help me to faithfully present them, Lord. And I pray that you would impress them uh, upon each heart here in the way that they need, uh, Lord, that they might go away from this place, having met with you, uh, having trusted in your word, and having been changed. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. 
Well, I know not everybody likes statistics. I'm kind of a sucker for statistics. And uh, in the most recent national census, uh, it uh, was, was quite encouraging. 53.3% of Canadians are Christian. That's what the census revealed. So that means that today, over half of the country, over 20 million people were in church, and our country is doing so well morally because over half of the country is Christian, and it's just buoying the morality of our country. My wife says I can be facetious sometimes. That's what the statistics say, down from 67.3% in 2000. And 11. Okay, so if that statistic is inaccurate to reveal the, the true heart uh, of our nation, let, let's consider a, another statistic perhaps. It uh, might be a clearer uh, way to figure out how many people in Canada are real Christians. Uh, another survey said one in three of those 53.3% of Canadians, one in three attend church yearly pretty good. So that means that 16% of the population is actually Christian, if we go by that statistic. And, and I have a friend, and they call those people who go to church once a year, uh, or twice a year even, uh, Christers. They go at Christmas and they go at Easter. They're Christers. But that's not the best statistic either. So let's think about this. Those who go semi-regularly, 6%. Of Canadians go to church semi-regularly using that that demonstration of worship as perhaps uh, a window into to people's hearts and so six percent semi-regularly let's be generous let's cut that in half and say that maybe three percent of Canadians are real Christians they've, they've truly trusted in Jesus uh, and they are living out their faith that means that there are 1.14 million Christians in Canada. Or uh, you look at it this way, uh, one uh, in 40 or three in 100, whichever way you think is better. That means that if you walk into a crowd of 100 people that regardless of what the statistics say, regardless of what people tick on the census, that you'll find three real Christians in that crowd of 100. I like to say uh, to people that just because I sit in a barn, doesn't make me a cow. Just because I, I sit in an automobile shop doesn't make me a car. Just because I sit in a church or I think of myself as a Christian doesn't make me a Christian. This morning we were looking at the question, uh, how do I become a Christian or what is a Christian? That was the question we were considering. And we were looking in the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And I want to carry that, that line of thinking here this evening. And uh, we were looking at fruit this morning. We were, we were used, I had a peach up in the pulpit. I don't know, Lee, if you've ever brought a peach in the pulpit before. But I had a peach in the pulpit, and we were looking at this. And you had to taste. To truly experience and know who the Lord is. And tonight, I want to, to carry on that theme of fruit and looking at verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So tonight we want to ask, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Or, how do I know that someone else is a Christian? 
And before you confuse, uh, accuse me of, of going down a path of, of judgmentalism tonight, I want to put this before us. That on the one hand, Jesus said, judge not. But on the other hand, he said, judge with right judgment. Judge not, judge with right judgment. So what was Jesus meaning there? Well, he is forbidding judgmentalism. And judgmentalism, I would put to us, is this attitude of superiority where we think that we are somehow better than someone and then we look down upon them and we pronounce judgment. We pronounce that they are less than us and we are greater than them. That's what judgmentalism is. It has to do with the the disposition of one's heart. Judging with right judgment, if you would, I would say, is evaluation. So you have judgmentalism and evaluation. Evaluation is just calling a spade a spade in accordance with Scripture. Uh, Recognizing that we ourselves are are sinners, saved by grace, so there's no pride there, but it's just examining, weighing things up. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And this is so very important, asking, am I a Christian or is someone else a Christian? Because if we're not a Christian, if we haven't been saved, if we're not a member of the kingdom of God, if we, if we don't know that we're going to heaven, that's the most important question we could, we could ever wrestle with. Am I saved? Am I a Christian? And, and the Lord wants us, if we are a Christian, to have assurance, to know that we are saved so that we might have joy and fullness of life. But he wants us likewise to evaluate others to be able to discern whether they are Christians as well. Because if they're not, we need to share the gospel with them. If they're not, we need to tell them about Jesus. And if they're not, we can't have fellowship with them. We can only have fellowship with real and genuine Christians. And so, for the sake of our own souls and assurance, for the sake of knowing who to witness to, for the sake of of fellowship and working together with other like-minded, real believers, partnership, especially in the dark days, in which we are living. We need to answer this question. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Or how do I know that someone else is a Christian? Jesus said that we need to be as wise as serpents. And as innocent as doves. And uh, there's a story. You may have heard the name of Jonathan Edwards uh, before. Jonathan Edwards was a, a minister in New England in the 1700s. At the time of George Whitfield, The famous evangelist. And, and there was a great revival that swept his community in New England, and he said, this is great, everybody's become a Christian. That was his kind of first naive impression. But then people started to fall away who seemed to have been caught up in revival. And so he wrote a book about that. It's called Religious Affections. And the the, the premise of the book is, how do you know if someone is a, is a genuine, genuine convert, if someone is a genuine believer, and, and he drew out some of the things that we're going to be considering this evening. So this evening, I'd like to first set the stage by looking at our verse uh, briefly in its context, and then suggesting uh, five things that would bring us assurance whether we are a Christian or whether someone else is a Christian. So let's consider this passage uh, from Matthew. We have John the Baptist. I'm a beekeeper. I'm quite partial to John the Baptist because he he liked to eat honey like I like to eat honey. But John the Baptist is this incredible figure. Uh, There's nobody greater in the Bible, we are told, before Jesus than John the Baptist. So you think of all the prophets. He was a prophet. You think of all the prophets under the old covenants. There's no one greater 
than John the Baptist. He had this incredible role to prepare people for the new covenant, to prepare people for his, his cousin's arrival, Jesus, for the arrival of the Messiah. He's this great bridge and link between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that's why we have uh, these scripture quotations here from Isaiah and from Malachi. He is this Elijah-like prophet who would prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus, for the arrival of the Messiah. And so to do this, he had a very sobering message. He had a, a message of judgment, but also repentance. Judgment and repentance. And, and this struck a chord with the, with the Jews of this day because the Jews were looking forward to the coming kingdom. And they didn't want to miss the coming kingdom. They wanted to be part of that. So it really struck a chord. And throngs of people from the city and from the countryside, they all began to come out and hear John preach. And they were touched by him. And they were, they were, their, their hearts were rended. They, they, they confessed their sins. And, and they were baptized as a, a sign of that. It says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And, and baptism was the sign linked with this message, this ministry of repentance. And, and baptism, the, the word, and we'll come back to this a little bit later, but the word literally means to, to dunk, to plunge, to immerse. And elsewhere in John's gospel, it says that John was baptizing where he was baptizing, for water was plentiful there. And baptism was this symbol of repentance. And, and the Jews would do a number of different things uh, to, to show that they were sorry for their sins. They might pray. They might fast. They might wear sackcloth and, and ashes. But another thing uh, that they would do at this time, uh, it was part of their uh, ceremonial absolutions, was called the mikvah, which uh, I've seen some in Israel. They look just like that over there, a baptistry, the exact same thing. Uh, and, uh, and they would do this as a sign uh, of their sorrow, of their uh, contrition, uh, of their heartbreak over their sin. And, and how was baptism uh, a symbol of this? Well, it represented, as we see even in Romans 6, uh, in terms of new covenant baptism, uh, a dying to self, wanting the, the sins of the past to, to go away, confessing them to the Lord, taking those sins away, and turning to the Lord, uh, and desiring to strike off on a new path. And so this symbol of his ministry, baptism, was used. But in verse 70, and he was very happy that the people came out, but in verse 70, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, they come and they want to be baptized as well. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees represented uh, the religious elite of this time. They represented nominalism. So holding uh, the, the, the name and the mantle of the Jewish faith, the Old Covenant faith, in name only, nominalism. That's what it means. And the Pharisees, you might say that they were known for their religiosity, trying to do things to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Sadducees were known for their compromise, uh, watering down doctrines, uh, working with the Romans, these sorts of things. But in either case, they represented the nominalism of the religious elites. And they liked to look good 
before people. That's why they were always dressing up in fancy clothes. And so here all the people are going out and, and they're listening to John and they're, they're undergoing this, uh, this message and they themselves were looking forward to the kingdom and so they couldn't miss out in a sense. They wanted to be there to put on a facade. And John the Baptist, being very perceptive, uh, he sees beyond their facade. He sees their true colors. And he calls them vipers. Now, I've seen lots of snakes, rattlesnakes in the wild and these types. I've never seen a viper. But I'm told that vipers are very subtle. They, they don't appear very dangerous. And then all of a sudden, they'll, they'll lash out and they'll, they'll bite you. And so vipers are, are a perfect description of the religious elite because they are subtle in their nominalism, right? They, they appear to be safe and trustworthy and respectable, but their true colors are in that they will they'll strike, right? They have, they have evil and wicked intentions. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus said that their father was the devil. And so if you call somebody a viper, right, and thinking of uh, of Satan in the Garden of Eden as a snake, if you call somebody a viper, if you're calling them a snake, you're, you're calling them demonic. And that's what John the Baptist was saying. And that's why, because they were coming with this nominalism, that's why he says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is one of those words that Christians often throw around. I call it Christianese, right? Our own Christian language. All of these biblical words that are very helpful, but we need to sometimes pause and remind ourselves or, or learn, perhaps for the first time, what they actually mean. And uh, repentance, or in the Greek metanoia, literally means a change of thinking. A change of thinking so that we think differently afterwards. Or you might even uh, describe it as a, as a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Okay? So think of it this way, that, that we recognize our sin right? in our thinking. We recognize that we've been going in this sinful path, away from the paths of the Lord. And then we express sorrow over that sin, because sorrow is, is also intermingled with the notion of repentance and, and, and having this change of mind. And we have uh, intense sorrow and, and contrition over our sins, that then we turn towards the Lord and desire to live a new life. We seek the Lord and desire to live uh, a new life. And so in, a, in effect, that true repentance, because we turn and then we turn towards the Lord, always will bring forth fruit. Will always bring forth a, a change of life, a, a change of thinking, a change of direction. And that's what John was looking for. He didn't want them just to come say, oh, I'm sorry, God. He wanted them to say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and change their life. And so if there is no change, if there is no amendment of life, if there is no fruit, and we're going to come back to some Bible passages about fruit later on, then there is no repentance. If there is no fruit, no change, there is no true and real repentance. Jesus said at the, the head of the Beatitudes, the head of the Sermon on the Mount uh, in, in just two chapters from here, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those 
who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. That's the, that's the condition for entering the, the kingdom of heaven. We have to recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt. Repent, turn, and trust in the Lord for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of new life. That's how we enter the kingdom. It is through repentance. It is through contrition of our sins. And Isaiah 66 verse 2b says, This is the one to whom I will look, declares the Lord. That means to show grace, to show favor. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. It's the gateway into the kingdom. And later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He's speaking of false teachers, false prophets, uh, but it applies the principle more generally. Thus, you will recognize them or you will know them by their fruits. You, you, will, you will know somebody who's a, a false professor or, or a false teacher by their fruits just as we will know a, a, a real professor and, and a real preacher by their fruits. And in that passage, Jesus asks a number of rhetorical questions. He says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And likewise, uh, in the book of James, uh, when James, he's talking about the tongue, uh, and, and, and where does our speech flow from? Well, it flows from our heart. And, and he too uses this type of analogy uh, of, you know, can uh, a freshwater spring bring forth salt water? And I believe he alludes to fruit as well. And so this is a well-established idea and principle that we find in the Bible. And of course, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. It says that on Judgment Day, many will come before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord. And He will say those terrible words, I never knew you. And so how do we know that we are a Christian? Or how do we know that someone else is a Christian? Well, we must repent and we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So we're going to see the Holy Spirit has a, has a crucial role in that. That if, if He's in our life, he's, he's the driving force leading us to bear fruit. And we are promised the Holy Spirit if we repent. And so bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Five basic things I believe that we see of in Scripture uh, that will testify, assure us that we're a Christian uh, or that someone else is a Christian as well. These are the five things. And they all are linked with uh, regeneration and faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That if those things are, are true in our life, uh, we will display these five things. The first is that we will confess Jesus with our lips as Lord. Second is that we will have an inner witness of the Holy Spirit assuring us of forgiveness of sins and salvation. The third is that we will be baptized. The fourth is that we will live a life that is like Jesus. And the fifth is that we will persevere in the faith. Five things. Lips, the inner witness of the Spirit, baptism, life, and perseverance. So let's consider these things together. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Uh, we read these important words about our lips. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What, in effect, is that saying? It's saying that we need to acknowledge verbally. It, verbally, in, in court, is how we, we testify to, to whether something is true, a, a reality that, that when we bring things just from our thoughts into our words and we, and we, we declare them, that, that has a certain power. There's a certain authority and truth uh, associated with that. And when we say with our mouth, yes, I believe that Jesus is God's Son. Yes, I believe that He died and rose again. And when we confess Him as Lord, meaning I no longer view myself as Lord of my life. I have repented of my sins and I've turned to Him. He's now my Lord and Savior. He's the, the King of my life. He's, he's calling the shots. He's the one now that I love. When we do that publicly, that testifies to the fact that we are a Christian. When we declare faith in the Gospel. And it's a very interesting test. Some people like to talk about God. But you try to get them to talk about Jesus. Is Jesus on their lips? Or if you mention Jesus, what do they do? Do they squirm? Or do they smile? Right? This, this line of thinking. We need to confess Jesus with our lips. We could expand that even and talk about we need to hold true in our confession to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But if there is no confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are not a Christian. Second thing is inner assurance. Inner assurance. Uh, I had a man, thankfully he, he's now come to, to know the Lord, but I've actually had a number of people in our community that we've been trying to share the gospel with uh, who have presented the same thing. They, they come and they, they believe that God exists and, and, and they want to do well. And they know that they should uh, seek God's, God's forgiveness. Uh, but they, they testify to me that every day I ask God to forgive my sins. And every day I have no assurance that I've been forgiven. Help me. What's going on? Well, in effect, they're simply throwing up as it were, Hail Mary prayers of, Lord, please forgive my sins, but they're not asking or finding forgiveness in the way that God has appointed. He said, you will find forgiveness through faith in the gospel, through repentance, faith in the gospel. And they're trying to find forgiveness outside of that. Right? Now, certainly, uh, Christians can still sin, and we, we do continue to need forgiveness, but I explained it this way, that when a uh, husband and wife come together and they are married, that's a once-for-all event. Okay? When we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, we are once and for all declared forgiven, declared righteous or declared just uh, in God's sight. A, a legal declaration. You can never take that away. Just a husband and wife, we come together and, and there's a permanency there. But my wife and I sometimes argue. And sometimes she's done something wrong. Sometimes I've done something wrong. And it doesn't mean because we've had a little conflict that we're not married. 
she's still my wife and I'm still her husband. What it means is that there's some type of relational impediment. And, and it might mean that I need to go and confess my sin to her. It might mean that she has to come and confess her sin to me. But that's a, that's a relational forgiveness. Okay? And so when we come to know the Lord through faith in Jesus, we receive that legal forgiveness. But when we sin against Him, there's still that relational forgiveness that we sometimes require. But what I love about uh, Scripture is it says in Romans 8 verse 13 that if we've truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented, trusted in the Gospel, it says that the Holy Spirit, who now dwells in us, testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. So the second way to know that someone is a Christian is that do they have an assurance of the forgiveness of sins? Do they have a, an abiding presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them? And some Christians uh, can, can describe even when they came to faith that the guilt of sin just washing away. Right? Or, 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 or an abiding joy coming into their hearts. And whether you felt that or not, on an ongoing basis, having that testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to us that we are children of God. So we have our confession. We have this inner assurance without which uh, there's no assurance that we are a Christian. And the third is baptism. I want to read for us from Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible, and it says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to a crowd whom he had told about Jesus, and they were cut to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? And after he has shared that, at the end of the passage, it says, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to the church that day, 3,000 souls. This morning, we were talking about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We were talking about entering into a, an experiential relationship with the Lord. And a lot of people, even Baptists who are well convinced of these things, can sometimes undervalue baptism. We don't want to overvalue baptism, say like the Roman Catholics who, who see it as, as, as saving. But I want to put to us that it is very important, and this is why. Because we, we talk about when we believe in, in, in the gospel, another way of saying that is, is we're believing in the new covenant. We, we are believing in, in what it means to be saved from our sins in this present moment in which we are living, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and God says, right, if you do this, if you repent and believe, I'll give you all this. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll give you eternal life. That's called a covenant agreement. And another way of talking about an agreement is a relationship. And when, again, uh, a husband and wife get married, uh, usually, uh, there are vows because it's a covenant, it's an agreement, it's an arrangement, uh, and usually there is a ring exchanged, and the ring is the sign or, or the symbol of the marriage covenant. And in, in the Bible, there are lots of different covenants, uh, agreements between God and man, and every covenant has a sign. For example, with Abraham it was 
circumcision. With Noah uh, and all of humanity in, in that particular covenant, it was the rainbow. Do you want to know what the covenantal sign is of the new covenant? It's baptism. By baptism, we show that we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have entered into the new covenant family of God. We are showing through our baptism that we are in a relationship with the Lord. You might say, well, well, why? What, what is that sign displaying? And it is displaying faith, which is born out in fruit, which is born out in obedience. Obedience, the word obedience means believing and coming under what we believe, right? Doing what we say, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance as it were. And one of the easiest commands that Jesus ever gave was to get wet, was to take the plunge. One of the easiest commands he ever gave. And it's the first thing he asks a believer to do to tell the world that they are now in covenant, in a relationship with the Lord. And there's wonderful uh, gospel symbolism there as well. But if we have not been baptized, we cannot have assurance that we have been received into the church. The fourth thing is by our life, by the life that we live how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives. And it talks in many places in the Bible, Romans, uh, Corinthians, about being conformed into the image of Christ, right? That when we see someone who is a Christian, more and more we should see that person becoming like Jesus. That if you see somebody who is becoming like Jesus, then we have this enhanced insurance that they are actually a follower and a believer of Jesus. Second Corinthians talks about becoming a new creation. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're also promised not only forgiveness, but new and eternal life that comes by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is dwelling within our hearts, and as we are being led by Him, and as we are walking uh, in accordance with the Spirit, and I, and I like to say that we're saved by faith, and then we walk by faith, then Galatians says we're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Right? We're, we're going to, to prove to the world that we're different, and we're different because we have the Spirit, and we have the Spirit because we've been forgiven, and we've been forgiven because we've trusted, and we've trusted because we've repented and had this change of direction, this change of thinking. And there are many other places in the, the New Testament that give these sort of lists, these, these tests of assurance, what ought a life, being transformed by the Spirit, look like? We see that in many different places. You could simplify it and say, is the person loving God? Are they loving their neighbor as their self, the great commandment? You could simplify it and say, the great commission. Are they seeking to, to tell others about Jesus and grow the church, grow the kingdom of God? Are they seizing hold of the means of grace? Do they attend worship? Do they read their Bible? Do they pray? Do they serve in the church? Do they treat their neighbor kindly? All of these things, these means of grace, they all bring us assurance. Now, Christianity is not about perfection. Christians still sin. Uh, sometimes we sin very gravely. But we, we ought to, to look at the, the Christian life as, uh, as not persisting in sin growing more and more like Jesus. I, I love the words of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He said this, 
I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I am not what I once was. Are we showing through our lives that the Holy Spirit dwells within us? 1 John uh, 5.13 says, I write these things to you. He's, he provides over 30 tests of assurance in the little letter of 1 John. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. How might we know that we have eternal life? All these things we've been looking at, but one is how we live our lives. If there's no fruit, no Christ-like living, right, we cannot be assured that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that we are a follower of Jesus. And last but not least, and it's linked to the former, the perseverance of the saints. It's possible for a Christian to trip and fall into a mud puddle. It's not possible for a Christian to perpetually swim in a pond of sewage. See the difference between once in a while falling into a mud puddle and, and, and just loving swimming in sewage. There's a huge difference between those things. And there are a number of, of passages in the Bible that speak to us uh, of the perseverance of the saints. For example, Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. We could read 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We could also turn again to Galatians 5 and that passage talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And, and it literally uses the word that a, a Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot persist in sin. Can we sin? Yes. But we cannot persist in sin. Why? Because yes, there is part contingent upon us. We need to walk by the Spirit. But if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, He has not only sealed us such that we cannot lose our salvation, He's also leading us. That ultimately, even though we can grieve the Holy Spirit for a time, for a season, He will ultimately, because salvation is of the Lord, bring us back to Himself. And so when somebody says, little Johnny at the age of five prayed some trivial prayer and for 60 years has never showed any fruit that they're a Christian. Well, guess what? Johnny never was saved in the first place. Why? How can I say that? Because they have not persevered. And if there's a small chance that he had truly trusted in the Lord, before he dies, the Lord, is going to bring him back. Because the final cog in the wheel of assurance, if you would, is that we cross the finish line. We run the race that is set before us. And so if we are not displaying perseverance, we cannot have assurance that we are his. And so how do we know that someone is a Christian? Or how do we know that we are a Christian? We know by whether we confess Jesus as Lord with our lips, whether we have a, an inner testimony and witness and assurance of the Holy Spirit, whether we have been baptized, how we live our lives, and whether we are persevering in the faith. And I don't share these things this evening to, to get us down. Uh, I don't share these things this evening in a spirit of judgmentalism. Uh, I share these things this evening in a spirit of evaluation that if we are genuinely a Christian, 
We can say, Lord, I have weighed my life by these things honestly, and now I can go take courage and continue to live for you with this assurance, with this, with this joy, with this hope. But if we have not, if we, we weigh ourselves, we examine ourselves by these five simple things, and we find ourselves to be wanting, there's a remedy. Repent. Of your sins. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Taste and see that He is truly good. All of these things will then fall into place. I hope this passage, this uh, verse, uh, this message this evening has given us wisdom, has given us discernment, and has given us, I pray, assurance as well. Let's pray before we sing our last song. Gracious Father, we thank you uh, that you are faithful, that all who repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are granted assurance of salvation. We thank you for the great plan and work of salvation that you work uh, in our lives as believers. And gracious Father, I pray uh, that you would bring us assurance. Bring us assurance of salvation that as John says, we may know that we are children of God. Gracious Father, bless everyone gathered here this evening. And we thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name.